0: Sorry, I didn't
1: quite get that. I said, welcome back to Thinking Is Cool, the show designed to make your next conversation better than your last, and you call yourself a smartphone. Hello everybody out there, wherever and however you're listening, even if it's on an Android, my thoughts and prayers are with you. I'm Kinsey Grant and I am a journalist and the host of this show. Now, I've been at it with Thinking is Cool for a whole four months now. If you've been along for any of that ride, you know that my mission with Thinking is Cool is twofold, to encourage people to have conversations and to show them what kinds of conversations we should but might not be having. Today, I promise to make good on both with an episode that will blow your mind as reporting it did mine. When I started this show, I made a choice. Every season, I will take on one big tech company. I'll go in as objectively as possible. I'll gather information and talk to smart people and get informed. And I'll report what I learn back to all of you. Because dunking on big tech almost feels like a cheap shot today. It's so easy that anyone could do it. I want to make sure that when I talk smack about Silicon Valley's hooded mafia, the big four of the Bay Area, I'm doing it for the right reason. Last season, I took on Facebook. I threw hands at Zuck for his gross misuse of power and almost unbelievable irresponsibility, for Cambridge Analytica and the 2016 election and so much more. I went in with a decent idea of the horrors Facebook was capable of, and my reporting confirmed what I had suspected—throwing hands was absolutely called for. But Facebook is easy to criticize—its evils are rather obvious. Today, my subject is one that's benefited by flying under the radar, say for a few headlines in the last couple of years. We don't dunk on its CEO, we don't talk about it really at all, despite the fact that this company is ubiquitous in every sense of the word. It's the reason we have apps like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Amazon, and every other tiny icon we tap obsessively throughout the day. On this episode of Thinking is Cool, we are talking about Apple. It's among the elite crowd of the world's most influential corporations, and yet, I don't know that much about this company. I've never really stopped to think about the implications of every single person everywhere having an iPhone. I've never given Tim Cook's morals much thought. I've just accepted that Apple is what it is. I haven't stopped to think, until now. My suspicion heading into this episode is as follows. Apple has leveraged its relatively positive reputation to utterly change the course of human history without humans really noticing. I'll explain whether I'm right or wrong on that one shortly, but first, like to give an enormous thank you to our friends and our season two presenting sponsor Fundrise. You'll get more information on Fundrise in a bit, but know that what they're doing really is unprecedented and a huge opportunity creator, so more to come now. I promise you three things about this episode. Episode four of season two of Thinking Is Cool. Number one, this will be neither a Steve Jobs fluff piece nor a Steve Jobs hit piece. I care very little about whether the Jobsian turtleneckers care what I say. Number two, this will make you think about the ways the small computer you're surely listening to this episode on has irretrievably changed your life. And number three, this will be fun. With that, nothing is off limits, everything is on the table, take it anywhere. And remember, thinking is cool and so are you. It has been 45 years since Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak founded Apple Computers Inc. For a company that's become synonymous with innovation and the cutting edge and the next must have tech, It's easy to forget that Apple is older than some of us and older than some of us by decades. So what do you do in 45 years of doing business? You succeed, you fail, you rise from the ashes, you inspire an entire generation of tech founders to dress in a very specific way, you succeed some more, and then you ascend beyond vehicle for capitalistic endeavors to something more, something more impactful, something more transcendent something more capable of changing the course of human history. Here's why I say that. In 45 years, Apple has touched us all. As of earlier this year, there are now more than 1 billion active iPhones across the world. There are 1.65 billion Apple devices in active use overall. Apple was the first company valued at $1 trillion, with a T, in 2018. Just two years later, it doubled that figure. This is a company that is most certainly impacting not only our relationships with technology, but also our relationships with each other. Think about what your life might be like without an iPhone. Seriously, think about it. For me, and we're talking about today alone, my iPhone has been my alarm clock, my radio, my source of entertainment during a brief lunch break, my means of paying for the lunch that I ate on that brief lunch break, my means of communication with my family at home in Florida and my boyfriend five blocks away, my map to a restaurant in Brooklyn, my camera, my portal to people all over the world on social media, and again, that's just today. This iPhone is a gateway to everything. Our iPhones are extensions of ourselves, almost always in our pocket or purse or hand or arms reach. But have you ever really stopped to think about what our collective reliance on this incredibly profitable and innovative piece of technology means for us? When you pick up your iPhone before you even get out of bed in the morning, that's something worth unpacking and understanding. So that's what we're thinking about today. Is this the good kind or the bad kind of Apple? because we can decry the negative impacts of technology and social media and Mark Zuckerberg all we want, but at the end of the day, they need the iPhone. They need Apple. We all do. Time to think about the implications of that deep dependency for us and for those who will come after us. Let's start by establishing the context for understanding just how impactful Apple is. Apple's tentacles are so deeply entwined in our lives that it's almost impossible to recognize what isn't a product of this company's influence, because everything is. I think of it like this. Apple is influential in the way that our parents are influential. It's an almost universal impact. We can maybe identify a handful of life choices that we made independently of this influence, but it's hard. Because even when we think we're acting independently, that influence follows us for better or worse. And while parents might impact a couple kids, Apple impacts billions. In 2019, which, mind you, were the pre-pandemic, pre-TikTok days, the average adult spent three and a half hours a day using the internet on their phone. That's about 1,278 hours per year, or 53 days out of the 365 we get. That massive amount of use is the product of some really incredible marketing, and more importantly, innovation. And it has been for a while. More than half of my life has been marked by a vast suite of products with the letter I in front of their names. I remember when the first iPhone came out. Who in my sixth grade class was the first to get one? The time Will B. taped an iPod to his Motorola razor and joked that it was an iPhone? I remember so clearly getting my own iPhone in 2010 as a gift from my uncle and teaching my parents how to type on anything that wasn't a BlackBerry. I got my first Apple product, a green iPod, in 2004. And since then, not a day has gone by that I haven't used something designed by Apple in Cupertino, California. Let that sink in. Almost 20 years of using one company's products. I think the only one that has not beat for me is, like, Charmin. And I know my experience is representative for many of us. But would you believe me if I told you, especially the younger among you, that this wasn't always the case? That Apple was actually kind of fringe for kind of a while until the iPhone changed everything? You're about to hear part of a conversation I had with Christopher Mims, a technology columnist at the Wall Street Journal and someone whose work I've admired for many years. This issue, the intersection of human behavior and technology, is Christopher's bread and butter. So you're going to hear from him a lot in this episode. All right, now to Christopher. So first big question I have is just to set the stage a little bit and get a, a better framework for understanding why we should be talking about Apple and Apple being scrutinized more fairly in the first place. Can you offer any context as to how Apple came to this this place of such we can call it prominence, we can call it domination, we can call it whatever we want but this really unique position within the consumer tech arena.
0: So you can't tell the story of Apple's dominance without, telling the story of the iPhone and really the iPod before it. Uh, Just to rewind the clock to, you know, one of history's greatest demos, which was Steve Jobs showing off the original iPhone. You know, it's easy to forget at that time. And, And of course, I'm old enough now that I'm encountering people who just don't even remember that at the time, Apple was, for lack of a better term, a niche player in the Internet, in consumer electronics. They had... What, less than 10% the share of the personal computer market. You know, they weren't anywhere in terms of cloud services or all of the things that we just think of as, as being giant trillion-dollar companies today. The story's been told better by others. Brian Merchant has a great book on it, which I recommend. There was a lot of happenstance that went into this device, and a lot of it was just driven by you know steam jobs is you know he does deserve credit for being not just an innovator but just very pig-headed in terms of you know well i want this like i want this kind of gorilla glass screening you know there shouldn't be a stylus and you know it should work this way and the app store at the time which now is just so dominant was an afterthought really initially uh, there was no app store on the iphone i couldn't support it even if they had wanted to because of the processor and there was more of a thought that it would you know, give you maybe the mobile web on your device. And it took off in ways that you know, no one could have predicted, even, even its creators. So in that way, it's that mixture of you know, innovation and luck. It turns out putting the internet in your pocket and giving it this totally new interface modality which of course was not pioneered by Apple, but was pioneered by other companies that sort of failed to make it happen before. You know, This touch-based modality you know, created something that was just absolutely transformational, as big, probably bigger than the personal computer and the internet revolutions.
1: A mobile web device, innovative thinking, some really good luck, that took Apple from niche player to $2 trillion company. And it took us out of what feels like the Stone Age. iPhones changed Apple's trajectory and subsequently the world's. And I'll tell you how after a quick break to hear from the fine folks at Fundrise. Tell me that you're in your mid to late 20s without telling me that you're in your mid to late 20s. I'll go first. I had a dream last week that I was watering my garden. Yeah, you heard that correctly. My tiny West Village apartment was replaced by a full-blown house, complete with a back patio, a spacious eating kitchen, and even a garbage disposal. My subconscious might as well have just thrown in a golden retriever and a white picket fence to really round out this American dream trope it was clearly following. But here's the kicker, I think I liked it. Don't get me wrong, New York City, I will always love you, but it seems like there will come a day in the not-so-distant future when I want to wake up and maybe smell a freshly cut lawn and not mountains of garbage piling up on the sidewalk outside of my apartment. To help me eventually purchase and, I guess, fulfill this dreamscape my subconscious has prepared for me, I'm using Fundrise. It's kind of the perfect life hack for my fellow 20-somethings when it comes to owning a home. Because as we know, private real estate has historically been reserved for large investors due to the amount of money it takes to actually get started. But now with Fundrise, anyone can own and invest in real estate. Fundrise has account levels ranging from 10 bucks to $100,000 that give you the flexibility to invest the right amount at the right time. Visit fundrise.com slash think that's f-u-n-d-r-i-s-e.com slash think to sign up for free and start working toward your real estate dreams, or just put them off and move to purgatory, Brooklyn instead. I hear they have lawns there. Before that break to hear from Fundrise, I told you I'd explain a little more about how Apple changed the world with the iPhone. A lot of it centers around the fact that at the end of the day, it's just a really good product. I mean, there's a reason why there are countless Google results for how to beat iPhone addiction. A lot of it has to do with our brains. Scientists have for a while now surmised that our screen addictions have a lot to do with dopamine. The neurotransmitter dopamine makes us feel that tingling sensation, one many have likened to a reward. We get a notification, we feel important, and we feel needed. If the notification is something disappointing, like, I don't know, Slack, we stare at the tiny glass screen until something better comes along that'll actually make us feel good. It's addiction, plain and simple. Here's more of my conversation with Christopher Mims. Can you offer any context as to how we have changed as as humans since this product demo, since this first iPhone demo? What have we changed about our behaviors and our expectations of techno- of technology because of what Apple made and what Apple did and how Apple has grown these products?
0: I, I don't think that the word cyborg is too strong a word. Right, like we've been, humans have been cyborgs since we first started making stone tools. Uh, you know, it, cyborg defined as a fusion of of technology and you know our biology. Uh, but having the internet in our pockets, uh, I, it really has transformed us. We have it all the time, and it really has become our default uh, way to connect to the internet. But as the internet sort of eats everything else, as that sort of feedback loop. Grows more and more powerful it's our default way to to connect to and interact with the real world right because suddenly makers of services and other products have an incentive to connect those products to the internet so they can connect to you through your phone um you know people talk about oh maybe in the future we'll have brain implants i think that the phone really kind of puts off that future by decades or centuries because why do you need a brain implant when you have this incredibly uh, high-speed, uh, you know, interface system, you know, port to your brain, known as your eyes and as your your hands, which you can then, you know, have this high-speed connection to this device in your hands? So, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we have become cyborgs in the sense that science fiction authors predicted. And we are going to be sorting out the implications of that for, you know, decades, if not centuries.
1: I think it's important to, one, recognize that being cyborgs isn't all that bad in a lot of ways. It's actually made our lives easier and safer. And two, recognize that getting to this point, one, of turning billions of Earth dwellers into cyborgs, actually wasn't all that complicated. The Danish author Martin Lindstrom wrote that the most powerful marketing strategies are often centered around three very human behavioral needs, routine, belonging, and trust. Think about Apple for a moment in that context. Routine, check, thanks to regular product releases and upgrades scheduled every September, and of course that alarm clock sound, I know all of you know. Belonging, check, thanks to that immediate ick you feel when your text goes through as green. Trust? Check, at least for now, given that Apple's reputation for security and data privacy is pretty stellar compared to its peers. I mean, they won't even hand over passwords to the government. That makes the complicated seem simple, which is kind of Apple's thing. But at the core, LOL, of this sleek, sexy, uncomplicated approach to consumer technology, there's a complicated tenant of Apple's success tied up like a present with a bow by this Steve Jobs quote. Get closer than ever to your customers, so close that you tell them what they need well before they realize it themselves. Apple did just that through a mix of mostly purposeful, but some accidental ingenuity. Let's jump back into my conversation with Christopher. Now, we we can pinpoint exactly when this debut happened, but it's perhaps a little bit more difficult to exactly identify when this became the inevitable piece of technology that it is today that has infiltrated our lives in so many ways. It kind of just happened, and and I don't know when, but it did.
0: And to your point, it really could have happened in other ways that would have shaped our behavior differently. But because Apple got to be the one to define what the mobile internet revolution would look like, you know, before somebody else came along with a different idea of what that would look like and you know crowded them out, we have as a result, and it's embodied in Android too, which is basically a carbon copy of the original iPhone in and, and its basics. We have as a result a very Apple-y version of the mobile internet in our pockets. You know, whatever platform we're using, and as a result, it's good in that it's easy to use. The downside, arguably, is that it is. Such a joy to use, right? Like Jobs and Apple have always been so focused on things that sort of like bring you joy that I think you can attribute a lot of the challenges that we have with our devices being so compelling, so addictive, and so pervasive to the fact that Apple in some ways maybe did its job a little too well. And so I do find it rich sometimes that they have rolled out their screen time initiative. I I love getting that little report on my device. I'm being sarcastic because I don't think it actually reflects like whether I'm spending my time (laughs) well or not on the device. Right. It's a little rich because it it is sort of a belated recognition of like, wow, we, we, we did this so well that now people can't stop looking at these devices. They can't stop routing every part of their life, whether it's dating or shopping or transportation or anything through these devices.
1: Yeah, I think you bring up a compelling point, too, about responsibility. There is, of course, an advantage in being the first mover. There's a reason we call it the first mover advantage, but there's also a great sense of responsibility that I wonder if at the time when these tech companies are introducing these world-changing technologies, do they necessarily recognize that responsibility when they're bringing them to the masses?
0: I mean, definitely not. And part of that sort of in their defense is that they view everything as a battle for survival. And and they're not wrong, right? Like, today's dominant tech company is tomorrow's, you know, Sears Roebuck or whatever, at some point or another. I mean, on the other hand, you know, today's dominant tech company can also be tomorrow's General Motors or Ford or Chrysler. They can build an empire that lasts a century. So when they're rolling these things out... I. I don't think they're thinking about that at all. I think that they are really thinking about, can we create something that's gonna get traction in the market?
1: But remember what I told you at the very beginning of this episode. Apple is a 45-year-old company. Apple has lived through nine presidential administrations. This is no longer a fringe tech startup fighting for survival. It's a $2.5 trillion company. In its most recent earnings report, Apple tallied a quarter record of $81.4 billion in revenue, up 36% from just a year earlier. Apple is not fighting for survival. I think it's fighting for dominance. And in a lot of ways, I get that. It's what makes Apple so valuable. But motives and their ripple effects change when you go from fighting to survive to fighting to thrive. More on that after a quick break to hear from our friends at Public. I would like to extend a heartfelt thank you to whomever was doing PR for the quote unquote nerds in the early 2000s. I mean, whatever kind of magic you used, it worked. Nerds became cool, maybe even hot. Kevin DePore crushed the talent show and got the girl. Rory Gilmore graduated at the top of her class and dated every attractive guy in her hometown. Hermione made Malfoy cry and somehow Michael Sarah became seductive. The best part is that this cultural shift has had staying power. Being nerdy is the new having a car. It's cool and sexy to be smart and it's even cooler and sexier to put in the work to get smarter. Making out, Mm, I think I'd rather nerding out. And the tech world has taken notice. Take the free social investing app, public.com, for example. I'm a huge fan and user of this app, mostly because it's dedication to making learning more about stocks and investment strategies super easy. On the public app, you can invest in companies you believe in and find built-in learning opportunities around every corner. I've used the public app to go down some very geeky rabbit holes on investments and potential investments that reflect my interests and values and goals. Public.com is changing the culture of investing. It's moving these conversations off the golf course and back into the public discourse so that information is more accessible and related to the things that you actually care about. Get nerdy with me and sign up at public.com. That's P-U-B-L-I-C.com with the code STAYCOOL to get started with $10 in free stock when you open an account. Just remember, this offer is valid for US residents that are 18 and older only, and is subject to account approval. Regulatory and firm fees may apply. This is a paid endorsement for public.com. Open to the public investing is a member of FINRA and Civic. And now we are back to the action. When this episode started, I explained that for someone who makes it her business to know about influential businesses, I didn't know enough about Apple and its influence, but I took the time to think about it. And that influence is huge. I mean, we're talking about the way that we communicate, the way we do business and accomplish tasks, the way we call cars and order food. I mean, the list goes on. Now, information and context in hand, I have an assertion to make. It's my belief that any company that influential, that capable of turning us into cyborgs in the span of a decade should be held accountable for its impact. Apple deserves scrutiny, which in fairness, it sometimes gets. This week is one of those times. Right now, Apple is looking down the barrel of a couple of controversies. There's Apple's strange but long overdue App Store concession. Famous for taking 30% commission of App Store purchases, which contribute to a $20 billion App Store business, Apple recently announced that it will allow some apps, like Netflix and Spotify, to direct their users to payment methods outside of the App Store. It's a big reversal there, seeing as it was impossible to sign up for a Netflix account on the Netflix iPhone app for a good long while. There's also the child safety measures Apple's getting flack for right now. After announcing in August that it would roll out tech designed to scan users' iPhones to detect images of sexual abuse for children, Apple rolled back the debut of the tool. That was because of major backlash from privacy groups essentially for touting the first technology that would allow a company to look at a person's private data and report that private data to law enforcement. And let's not forget, Apple is facing antitrust investigations in the US, the EU, Britain, and India, and it's awaiting the verdict in a lawsuit brought by Epic Games over its App Store commissions. The biggest criticism Apple gets is that it makes unilateral decisions for the whole of the mobile internet economy, which it often does. The second biggest criticism Apple gets is that it snuffs out competition, which it sometimes does, aforementioned investigations pending. If you've listened to this show before, you know that I'm typically of the belief that regulators need to do more to rein in big tech, and that our sole responsibility is to vote for lawmakers we think will further that regulatory aim and in turn create a fairer, freer online world. Unpacking the Apple story is shaking that belief system to its core, again, LOL. And that's because in the case of Apple, it's skated by without a ton of regulatory or media-driven backlash because it's kind of been above board. Here's more of my conversation with Christopher. Where in your view does responsibility fall to ensure that these technologies are developed in a way that is better for us? Is it on us as the users to be responsible users? Is it on these companies to ensure that they're making a product that is potentially less addictive? Is it on regulators to ensure that the companies are kept you know, accountable? Where where do you think responsibility falls here?
0: I think responsibility falls on on all of us to be intelligent and thoughtful if we have the privilege and the time about how we use technology and then advocating for its use or regulation, if appropriate, or innovation, if that is our bent, so that we use it better.
1: I found this in ink to be equally perception shattering. Quote, in recent weeks, high profile reports have suggested that the phone we use is to blame for our addictive tendencies. It's a big mistake. One report suggested downgrading your phone. Another said Apple should take more responsibility for thwarting our addiction. This is misguided. That high-powered Corvette is not to blame for your speeding problem. Outback Steakhouse has no responsibility whatsoever to start serving only salads and vegetables, changing their name to Outback Salad and Vegetable House. Your local Walmart sells Coke and Mountain Dew in 24-packs all day long. There's no reason to blame the largest brick-and-mortar retailer on earth for our pop addiction." End quote. I went into this episode ready to take Apple to task the way that I did Facebook last season. But thinking is only cool when you're prepared to be a little wrong. What you're about to hear is a real-time recording of me having my perceptions shattered. I usually share the best and most illuminating bits and pieces from my interviews, but in this case, all the bits and pieces felt necessary. So come spend a few minutes on the phone with me and Christopher Mims.
0: No, we can't turn back the clock. I mean, as individuals, we can make choices to you know, put guardrails on the way that we use technology. So, so we're using the technology as a tool rather than being used by the technology. That said, it is very hard to look at the way humanity is behaving in aggregate and the amount of time people spend on the way that we use technology. So, so we're using the technology as a tool rather than being used by the technology. That said, it is very hard to look at the way humanity is behaving in aggregate and the amount of time people spend scrolling and you know just imbibing information and interacting through our devices and not say well uh you know as a society we've not only escaped any chance of putting the genie back in the bottle but we are now really beholden to this device and all of the interactions and mediums that it delivers to us and the ways that they are delivered to us whether that is you know misinformation on social media or uh you know conveniences which are great but which come with a cost you know Mm -hmm. um and i'm talking here about all of the conveniences of online commerce and food delivery again these things are great i'm not a luddite however you know the ways in which they're delivered to us the ways in which we come to expect instant gratification at every moment um You know, it probably short circuits, you know, what Daniel Kahneman would describe as our slower and more thoughtful systems of thinking where we stop to ask whether everything that we're doing is kind of in our own best interest and in the best interest of civilization and the planet.
1: Yeah, there's this and this might be a little petty. but I think that there's this really interesting intersection when we think about the impacts of technology on our everyday lives. You know, we know that in a lot of ways, technology is writ large a positive. It's a net positive for, for many of us when we think about the ways that it's made our lives easier. But when we think about, um, you know, let's say like fire as technology, or to your earlier point, using stone tools as technology. Those things, we we know that they made us better and stronger and made us live longer and helped us to accomplish things easier and all of that good stuff, but they weren't necessarily products of a capitalist system. And I think that in some ways, that's a little bit of, you know, when I talk to people around my age, that's a little bit of where we get uncomfortable because we know that this technology has made our lives easier, but at the same time, we know that in a lot of ways, we are also the product. We are are the direct line of profit for a lot of these tech companies that have created incredible tools that make our lives easier, but are also making quite a bit of money off of those tools. And that I think is is where we find this, this sense of being really like icked out by all of this and um, feeling a little uneasy thinking about tech a little too long. Like it, it gets uncomfortable if you think about it for too long, That you're the product in a lot of ways, and we can't live without these tools. And I don't know if I trust these companies to be the responsible stewards of this tech, um, knowing that I can't live without it at this point.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, th- I think whenever you're the product, that is the problem that, you know, I and funny enough, of course, one of the biggest exponents of that View and most visible is Tim Cook himself, right? He's constantly savaging Facebook and and Mark Zuckerberg, if if not by name, quite, uh, as, you know, being and running companies that are all about making you the product. There can be some amount of hypocrisy there, uh, you know, as Apple's strategy shifts toward cloud services and advertising and all the rest. I would kind of turn this question around because i'm really curious about um your generation's you know squeamishness about all of this being the product of a capitalist system and without getting deep into like is there any such thing as ethical consumption under (laughs) capitalism i'm curious kind of where that view comes from and and what do you view as the alternative right like would we rather that i don't know we nationalize apple or something like that like (laughs) Is it just a squeamishness in general? Yeah. sense yet of what the alternative
1: is or I think well how I th- does that manifest th- yeah I think age? that uh that that's what what breeds this existential crisis is that I I cannot think of a better alternative I I don't think that the technology would be as easy to use or as applicable to my life right now if it were <laughs> we nationalized Apple um, and I don't necessarily believe that's the right thing to do but at the same time there is this this kind of common sense of urgency of recognizing that we are it's still make me uncomfortable if there were something out there that I couldn't live without, or I couldn't do my job without, I couldn't pay my bills without, um, and knowing that they could make a change at any moment that will deeply impact my life, all they have to do is change one algorithm or change one tech product, and then all of a sudden, I don't know what to do with myself. Like That, that I think, is at the root of this sense of like feeling uncomfortable with technology. But the the crisis in all of this is that I can't think of a better alternative. (laughs) And I don't think many people can um, other than just trying to use tech less. But that is also just unrealistic today. I, I couldn't do my job. I couldn't be a podcast host without a ton of people having iPhones. And I'm acutely aware of that, perhaps painfully aware of that.
0: Yeah, that does make sense. I think that we are in an era of kind of a unique level of anxiety about these types of technologies because it's easy to forget that When the personal computer came along, it was viewed as uh, an almost revolutionary device. And I mean that in the sort of 60s sense of, oh, wow, we're going to take computing back from like IBM and we are going to, you know, George Orwell's 1984 was in part about what happens when, you know, computers become ubiquitous, but only the state can possess them. And so personal computing was like, we're like, I own this device. I can do whatever the hell I want on it. Oh, here comes the internet. I can connect to anybody. You know, the internet routes around censorship, treats it as damage. Like rah, 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 this is going to be amazing. And then what happened was all of these companies were like, we can make hundreds of billions of dollars from this. We're going to create walled gardens. We're going to control this. You're going to be glad that we're controlling it because we're going to tell you that, you know, if we just had an open app store, it'd be full of spam. and malware and you know there's some truth to that but we have kind of reconsolidated power like these technologies that were supposed to be instruments of liberation are as you say now in the hands of companies which it's difficult to sort of call them to account and it's not clear that our government is functional enough or even knows what to do in order to to curb their power and, and then also like how and where and do we actually curb that power? Obviously, the FTC now under the leadership of Lena Khan and with folks like Tim Wu in government is working on that. But it's not yet clear what exactly that should look like
1: yet. Apple should not be permitted to participate in anti-competitive behavior. And the backlash it faces over these app store fees is at least a little warranted. But the honest truth I've come to in doing my diligence on Apple is that it's on us. The product is great, yes, but we're the ones who have become addicted to our iPhones. This is on us. We made the problem and we should be held responsible for fixing it. I mean, what are we, to expect that the government is gonna step in and regulate our screen time? Um. I do
0: think regulation matters as well i mean it's funny how china just said uh kids can only game three hours per week from now on and between these hours because they're trying to curb internet addiction and um and you know on the one hand it's like oh what a terrible overreach uh what a terrible abrogation of people's rights and right to self-determination but on the other hand i you know there probably isn't a parent in america who doesn't look at that and say like huh well, that wouldn't be the worst thing ever. I mean, personally, I don't need the government to do that because I'm already very strict about my kids' exposure to technology because I report every day on ill okay. effects. But uh, it's gonna take all of those things, and it takes us being people. I mean, uh, one thing that I think people underestimate the importance of is social contagion in a good way, where you know, if you go into an environment where nobody's looking at their phone, it quickly becomes really gauche. look at your phone it's like you brought a tv to the party like why are you staring at it so uh, all of these things matter uh, including our personal choices
1: Mm -hmm. and i think we also just have to come to a place of like the the goldilocks position of overreach right like we we get so squeamish when we feel the government does too much and then we also feel squeamish when we feel they're not doing enough and perhaps we're never satisfied but that i i think that might be a question for uh, another episode (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, that's just democracy, right? It's a compromise that no one's happy
1: with. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. In the case of big tech, my resting state is usually waxing poetic on the failures of an outdated regulatory system to hold technocrats and the owner class accountable. I was prepared to reach that conclusion with Apple, but I've been proven wrong. I'm never not going to tell you that voting is the single most important thing you can do to affect change that you want to see in the world, but in this case, consider voting with your time. If you're concerned that Apple's infiltrated our lives a little too much, put down your phone. Go outside. Get an alarm clock. Call a restaurant to order food and maybe do it on the landline. Buy a film camera. Make small changes to your tech use if the fact that Apple fully changed all of our behavior makes you squirm. Chris?
0: Sometimes societies just learn. I mean, I think if you look at the way attitudes toward television shifted over time it's easy to forget that pbs was started because a bunch of idealists were like we are going to eliminate the education gap in america by putting educational programs into every home and making it publicly funded and sesame street is going to you know make literate a whole generation of children who otherwise you know would be deprived i think but the modern day, people are like, well, TV, it's fine in moderation. I think that we've seen a similar shift toward people's relationship with their devices. But, you know, it's going to take yet more time for us to really sort that out.
1: Yes, talk about regulation and ensuring that Apple doesn't become the next Facebook. But at the end of the day, this is kind of on us, at least right now. We have to buy in on curbing our smartphone addiction before we can expect Apple to do anything because the truth is, it's hard to come up with evidence that Apple has done all that much wrong. More urgently, we need to take the time to think about how we got here. That's what I set out to do at the beginning of this episode, better understand how Apple has changed human history. And it has, but we have helped it. I'm optimistic that we can, as Christopher said, sort it out. That starts by thinking a little harder about the impact companies like Apple have on each and every one of us. So consider these thought starters in your iMessage group chat. How do you think Apple has changed human behavior and the course of human history? Do you trust Apple more or less than you trust other big tech companies and why? Has Apple been a net positive or net negative on the modern world with its technological innovations? Is Apple responding to our needs? or dictating them. Do you think you practice good digital hygiene or keep track of your screen time and practice moderation consciously? It's time to get to thinking. Without Apple, there would be no Uber and probably no TikTok. We might still order food delivery, but certainly with less frequency. Without Apple, it's hard to imagine touchscreen modalities taking off the way that they did with phones and tablets and smartwatches. We wouldn't have EKGs on our wrists and pods in our ears. But also without Apple, we might be a little less likely to compare our real life reflections to face tuned bodies we see on our screens. Taxis and flashlights and point and shoot cameras and bank branches might still exist. We might fearmonger a little less. We might connect face to face and with new people a little more. As the saying goes, woulda, coulda, shoulda. It's too late to imagine a world without Apple because Apple is in some ways the architect of the modern world. Now, the chance is ours to make sure Apple and its peers make that a world worth living in. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thinking Is Cool. Thank you to Christopher Mims for being such a robust and thought-provoking source. And thank you to Apple for being a publicly traded company that's legally required to air its dirty laundry to the SEC. One more note before we head out on our collective journey to engineer accountability for big tech companies like Apple. Lately, I've been a fan of the Democracy Works podcast. It's a show that examines big questions about what it means to live in a democracy. To name a few, we're talking, why do we have two parties? How can we create a true multiracial democracy? How do we address the growing generational gap in politics? Kind of sounds like the perfect compliment to thinking is cool, right? Democracy Works looks to move beyond partisan spin to examine the root of what's really happening. It feels like that discussion that you would have with your favorite political science professors after class. You can find the show at democracyworkspodcast.com or in any podcast app. Now, Thinking is Cool Brainiacs, time to go start your conversations. I'm Kinsey Grant and remember, thinking is cool and so are you. See you next time.